Cases EM Quick Hits podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. First up, we have Swami on a halo procedure that's relatively easy to do, but like we said in our Opto Trauma episode, the hardest thing is just deciding to do it. Like the Nike ad say, just do it. And you need to do it like a ninja. So listen up. Most of what we do in emergency medicine isn't resuscitation. It's not critical care. It's not critical procedures. In fact, most of the procedures we do are things like IND of abscesses and maybe a suture repair. But we do have to know a certain number of rare and critical procedures. These are the so-called high acuity, low occurrence, or halo procedures. And the one that we're going to talk about today, the lateral canthotomy or cantholysis. Having to perform a canthotomy is an unusual event. Many physicians have never done one. Fortunately or unfortunately, I'm the outlier here. I've been involved in at least 10 of these. And with each one, I've learned a little bit more. And I want to share some of those tips with you guys. One of the key things that I've learned is that many ophthalmologists have also never done one of these. So you can't always rely on your consultant even if you happen to have an opto consultant that you can get to your emergency department when the need arises. The typical case that you're going to see is a patient who has eye or facial trauma, and they're going to present with swelling and decreased vision. Now, obviously not every patient with trauma is going to need a cantholysis, so it's important to know what the indications are. Indications are a history of trauma with vision loss, severe proptosis, an afferent pupillary defect, the patient may have partial or complete ophthalmoplegia, And you're going to be looking for an IOP, an intraocular pressure, greater than 40 millimeters of mercury. This is basically a compartment syndrome of the orbit. As such, the cantholysis is a vision-sparing procedure. We need to perform it immediately, but in a controlled fashion. So first, get your supplies together. Fortunately, not too many things you need. 2% Lido with Epi, a 25-gauge needle to inject that Lido with Epi, a straight clamp, and iris scissors. One other thing that this requires, not quite a supply, but something that is absolutely 100% necessary, is a compliant patient. The patient needs to be completely still for this procedure. I don't want to hold a scissor, an iris scissor, or otherwise near the orbit if the patient's moving around. And unfortunately, many of these patients are intoxicated. This is not a situation where you can just have someone hold their head still. You really need to have full compliance for the patient. For many of the ones that I've performed, I've either needed to do procedural sedation or intubate the patient and have them on a propofol drip to keep them completely still while we do the lateral canthotomy. Now, once you're ready, once you have a patient that is completely still, think about the anatomy in your head because that's going to help you decide where you're going to cut. We'll have a nice image in the show notes showing you exactly where to cut as well as a video. The lateral canthal tendon or ligament, it actually has both features, has two different branches, a superior and an inferior branch. We're going to be focusing on cutting the inferior branch, and we'll come back to that in a moment. First, we're going to start by prepping and draping the lateral canthal area. We're going to then inject one to two cc's of our Lido with Epi along the lateral border. 
The next thing we're going to do once that local anesthesia is kicked in is use our straight clamp to crush the tissue of the lateral canthus. So we're going to get that lateral canthus between the two arms of that clamp and then crush down. And we're going to leave that clamp in place for about one to two minutes. This is going to help to devascularize the tissue so it doesn't bleed too much. And it's going to leave an indentation of the clamp along the skin that you can use as a marker of where to cut. Once you have that crush done, you're going to take your iris scissors and cut the lateral canthus. You're going to make a one to one and a half centimeter cut. And you can help with that cut by pulling down the lower lid with a tooth forcep. That gives a little bit of traction. It helps to better expose the area. That first cut is going to go through the skin and the abicularis muscle. The next thing you're going to do is find the lateral canthal tendon. And this is a blind procedure. It's going to be very difficult to find this with the amount of blood that's going to be there. You can either feel this with your finger or the tip of the iris scissors, and it's going to feel like a very taut guitar string. Once you locate it, you're going to aim to cut the inferior portion of that tendon. You're going to cut inferiorly and posteriorly. If you have a colleague pulling down that lower lid to start, you're going to know that your cut was successful because the lid is now going to easily pull away from the eye. You may only see a small amount of blood that is expressed after a successful cut is performed, and that's okay. The pressure will drop very rapidly. The next thing you want to do is make sure that you've actually released the tendon and you've released that compartment. So you're going to recheck the intraocular pressure, and if the pressure hasn't dropped adequately or you feel like you haven't fully decompressed that area, you can then cut the superior ligament, and again, you're going to feel that with your finger or your iris scissors, and then you're going to cut superiorly and posteriorly. Now, of course, this all sounds pretty simple, pretty straightforward, but it really does help to review the procedure a couple of times. So in the show notes, we're going to drop a great article published in 2002 by Susie Vassallo and her colleagues, and that's on lateral canthotomy. It's got some great images in it. And MRAP HD also has a fantastic video by Jess Mason reviewing the full procedure. All right. Time is I. A lateral canthotomy is indicated for patients with orbital compartment syndrome within one to two hours of onset of ischemic features like decreased visual acuity and RAPD. It's a temporizing measure to definitive surgical evacuation of the retrobulbar hematoma. So clues to orbital compartment syndrome are first the mechanical consequences, which are proptosis from the retrobulbar hematoma, most easily seen from the head of the bed with the patient lying supine. Then there's elevated intraocular pressure and impaired extraocular movements. So those are the mechanical consequences. The ischemic consequences are decreased visual acuity, RAPD, and ultimately a blown pupil. One of the key things is not to wait for a CT to confirm a giant retrobulbar hematoma. This is a clinical diagnosis, and that's all you need to go ahead with the procedure. Now, because the surgical field is usually very bloody, finding the lateral canthus becomes a tactile procedure and has been likened to the feel of a guitar string like Swami suggested. Don't forget the medical treatment for orbital compartment syndrome, which is similar to that of acute angle closure glaucoma, mannitol, acetazolamide, pilocarpine, and timolol. All right, next up, We've got toxicologist Emily Austin. Your next patient is a 16-month-old female who's been brought in by her parents. They tell you that she's normally healthy. About three hours ago, she vomited once, and after that, her behavior changed. She started staring off and just wasn't responding as much. She was too drowsy to eat dinner, and so her parents brought her into the hospital. At the bedside is a seemingly healthy-looking kid. 
She's lying in the stretcher with her eyes closed. Her vital signs are all normal for her age, and her cat blood glucose was 6.1 at triage. With a bit of stimulation, she moans and moves her upper extremities. You're giving her a GCS of maybe 6 or 7. Pupils are 3 millimeters, they'll constrict to light. She's got slightly decreased tone in all her extremities, but otherwise the remainder of her head-to-toe exam is normal. There's no bruising or evidence of any external trauma. This case that I've described can have a broad and concerning differential diagnosis for sure. It's also one that we're hearing about with increased frequency at our poison center. The piece of information that I've held back is that at about five hours prior to her registering a triage, mom found her daughter eating her way through a bag of cannabis gummies that was in the house. Mom knew that she'd eaten some, but didn't know how many, so waited to come in until it was really clear that her daughter was symptomatic. Any eMERGE physician whose practice involves kids can expect to encounter cases of pediatric cannabis exposures in their career. So is cannabis exposure in a kid concerning? How would a child present to the eMERGE and how should they be worked up? What kind of treatment is needed, if any? Finally, a common question is around the requirement for involving child protection services in any of these cases. Is this an absolute requirement in every case? So diving in. Importantly, pediatric exposures can have a distinctly different clinical presentation compared to adult exposures of cannabis. Some of these exposures can lead to morbidity and require hospital admission, and we just don't really see this in adults. Kids are likely going to have a higher dose per kilogram exposure. They might not just have one cookie or half of the brownie, but they'll eat the entire package. Finally, there's likely different pharmacodynamics at play in the pediatric population as well. Patients can present in many different ways, from asymptomatic to literally comatose. This makes it important to really assess and to monitor them for a decent amount of time. In general, a kid is going to start to display symptoms between 30 minutes to 3 hours after an exposure. Some believe that symptoms may not manifest until even a few hours later than that, maybe 4 or 5 hours. Most commonly, patients present with lethargy. They can also, however, have vomiting or be agitated have ataxia, hypotonia, tachycardia. Very rarely, patients will develop respiratory depression. In 2017, a systematic review was published of about 114 pediatric cannabis exposure cases, and 6% of these cases were reported to require intubation, and 18% of cases required admission to a pediatric ICU. So there is a minority of cases that do require more aggressive intervention. When you have a history of a cannabis exposure, urine tox testing is not routinely needed. A urine toxicology screen can confirm the presence of cannabinoid metabolites in the urine, and this may be useful in certain situations. But likely it's not going to add anything when you already have a clear history. So be considered in when you're going to order it. Also be aware that there are false positives and false negatives associated with urine immunoassay testing. In a typical case of a symptomatic child who's going to present with altered behavior, their symptoms are generally going to resolve without treatment, and the kid is going to return to their baseline within about 8 to 12 hours post-exposure. Some patients are going to be more symptomatic and will require admission primarily for monitoring. Occasionally, patients are going to be agitated in the emergency department and might need benzodiazepines, perhaps IV fluids if they need rehydration. Lastly is the issue of reporting to Child Protection Services. And on the surface, this is actually a bit of a tricky issue because cannabis is, after all, a legal substance. In fact, it's even prescribed by some doctors, maybe some of us. 
A lot of us aren't going to call child protection services reflexively after a child is seen for an exposure to, say, a pill of diltiazam that may have fallen on the ground or something like that. That being said, all of us have a duty to report in any scenario if we have concerns that a child is experiencing or at risk of experiencing physical, sexual, and or emotional abuse or neglect. With respect to unintentional cannabis exposures, it's not mandatory to reflexively report these cases to child protection services. But I think the important take-home is that consideration of this duty to report may be relevant in some cases and would lead us to do so. All right. So to summarize, we're seeing more and more pediatric cannabis ingestions in the ED and realizing that one-twentieth of these kids might require plastic in their trachea and one-fifth might need ICU admission for monitoring for LOA. This really should remind us that it is not a benign ingestion like it is almost always in adults. The key to picking up this diagnosis is just to ask the parents if there's a possibility of cannabis or cannabis-containing products that could be lying around the house for any kid that comes in lethargic or agitated, plus minus vomiting. All right, next up, we have a special guest who you've probably heard on EM Cases before, Dr. Ruben Strayer, ED doc from New York. This time, he's going to give us his approach to the patient with hyperthermia. Now, I know it's winter now, but remember that hyperthermia isn't always from environmental exposure. And all those listeners in the Southern Hemisphere are just now reaching the height of the summer heat. Hyperthermia is the quintessential emergency medicine disease. It affects the old and the young, the sick and the well, has a variety of causes that often cannot be elucidated before treatment must commence, and the diagnosis is entirely clinical. If the patient with severe hyperthermia receives prompt, appropriate treatment, they will do very well. But if not, they will do poorly. So have a plan in place before these patients come through your doors. There are two important pitfalls in managing hyperthermia, and the first is delaying diagnosis and treatment. If the patient is hot to touch and has altered mentation, get a rectal temp, and if higher than 40 degrees, that patient requires the highest level of attention available in your department, which in most places will be a recess bay. Remember that whether or not the patient is sweating is not important, despite most of us learning that the presence of sweating distinguishes classic versus exertional heat stroke. And there are a variety of heat illness terms and syndromes that most of us felt like we needed to learn at one point. Heat edema, heat cramps, and heat syncope, heat exhaustion, heat stroke, None of this is particularly important. What you need to know is the patient who requires emergent cooling, and that is the patient with a temp above 40 degrees, especially with altered mentation. These patients need to be cooled immediately. The second pitfall is using suboptimal methods to cool dangerously hyperthermic patients. For patients who require immediate cooling but have a core temp under 41 degrees, the best strategy is strip, spray, fan, ice. Firstly, strip, remove the patient's clothing. Second, spray. Continuously spray tepid water, slightly warm water all over the skin. Do not use cold water, which will activate a shivering response, and do not use wet sheets or towels, which will prevent evaporation. Note that this requires a spray bottle. You don't want to be digging one of these up when you need it. Have a designated place for a few spray bottles in your recess bay. Third, fan. You want a constant flow of high-velocity fanned air blowing over the patient. Note that this requires a fan. 
which you also don't want to be combing the hospital for when you need it. Fourth, ice. Once you have the patient getting sprayed and fanned, you should apply ice packs all over the body, not just at the groin and axillae. Continue spraying, fanning, and icing until the core temp gets down to 39 degrees. That's for dangerously hyperthermic patients under 41 degrees. Patients hotter than 41 should get ice water immersion. There are a million alternatives suggested in the literature. Cold water Foley, cold water NG tube, cold water thoracic lavage, therapeutic hypothermia machines. These are all inferior second line techniques compared to an ice bath. And ice water immersion is easy and cheap. Get it done as an immediate priority in very hot patients. Mortality increases with every minute the patient is over 41 degrees. The first step is to send staff to fill up large containers, like patient belonging bags, with ice. Put a body bag on a stretcher, remove the patient's loose clothing, and transfer the patient into the body bag. Place your rectal temperature probe and cover the patient in an ice water slurry all the way up to, but not including, the anterior chest. Ice water immersion is going to cool your patient fast, which is exactly what they need. When the core temp gets down to 39, take the patient out of the body bag and onto a dry stretcher, ideally onto warm towels, cover with sheets, and continue to monitor. Alongside immediate cooling, don't forget usual resuscitative care. Most of these patients should get a generous helping of crystalloid. Chilled saline or LR is ideal, but room temperature is fine. Kidney injury with hyper-K is an important complication that may become dangerous early on. Once cooling is underway, don't neglect the differential. Stimulant toxicity should be treated with benzodiazepines. Anticholinergic toxicity, thyroid storm, serotonin syndrome, malignant hyperthermia, they all have specific treatments to think about. Many of these folks develop rhabdo, check a CK. The sickest hyperthermic patients are going to require intubation. Succinylcholine, which I would suggest you should always avoid, is certainly to be avoided in this scenario for concerns around hyperkalemia and counterproductive fasciculations. Shivering can sometimes be a problem. You can treat with benzos, fentanyl, or if the patient is intubated, a non-depolarizing paralytic. Some of these patients will be hypotensive, but avoid vasopressors in the initial cooling phase of the illness. You need peripheral vasodilation to get the temperature down quickly. Lastly, dantrolene has some proponents for treatment of toxin-induced hyperthermia, something to consider if initial measures aren't working, but still controversial outside the treatment of malignant hyperthermia. All right, reviewing here, recognition of severe hyperthermia needs to happen and be addressed at the outset. If the rectal temp is less than 41 degrees, strip, spray, fan, ice, or SSFI. If the temperature is greater than 41 degrees, an ice water bath with a body bag is your go-to. Concurrently, work on your differential diagnosis, including thyroid storm and a long list of talk stuff. Sedative withdrawal, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, anticholinergic and sympathomimetic syndromes, SSRIs, ecstasy overdose, just to name a few. Don't forget to send a CK and keep your eye on the potassium. Next up, we have Britt Long, who's going to give us some pearls and pitfalls on the diagnosis and treatment of malignant otitis externa. But before we do, a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Since 2015, I've been using Metricade, the incredible self-scheduling system that has made my life and the lives of my colleagues so much easier. Metricade can really help minimize the drawbacks of shift work we all know so well. 
by not only ensuring equitable distribution of shifts, but also integrating circadian rhythm-friendly recovery time into their algorithms. They minimize my sleep deprivation, which allows me to be a better EM doc on shift. I can take better care of my patients and still have energy left after my shifts to enjoy other aspects of my life. Check out metricade.com slash emcases for more details on how this awesome scheduling system works. One of our primary jobs in emergency medicine is considering rare but potentially deadly conditions. Malignant otitis externa is just this, a rare condition that can cause disability or death if not diagnosed. Now, how does this disease happen? Technically, malignant otitis externa originates from a soft tissue infection of the external auditory canal, usually otitis externa. The disease spreads to the skull base through small perforations in the cartilaginous base of the external auditory canal, leading to osteomyelitis of the skull base. Cerebral abscess, meningitis, and death are the final stages of the disease. Diabetes, especially patients with uncontrolled serum glucose, and immunocompromised patients including HIV, are at highest risk for malignant otitis externa. One study, however, found that the only risk factor was an age greater than 65 years. Pseudomonas is a dominant microbe. Other microbes include Klebsiella and MRSA, which may account for up to 15% of cases. Fungal causes include Candida and Aspergillus, which more commonly affect patients with HIV and AIDS. Now, when should you think about malignant otitis externa? There are several important red flags you need to consider. You first need to consider these risk factors, including diabetes. When it comes to the exam, don't rely on fever, as most patients won't have a fever. The tympanic membrane should be normal, but the rest of the ear canal will look pretty bad. You will probably see purulent otorrhea with a swollen, tender external auditory canal. Granulation tissue or exposed bone may also be found, but immunocompromised patients do not often display granulation tissue. Pain is usually severe and out of proportion to exam. An evaluation of the cranial nerves is important, as more extensive disease will cause a deficit. The most common is a cranial nerve 7 palsy, which occurs in up to 25% of patients. Your keys are that you should think about malignant otitis externa in patients with severe pain out of proportion to your exam and severe otorrhea, especially in diabetics, the elderly, or immunocompromised state. What should you use for diagnosis? Labs can't be used to exclude the disease, as the white blood cell count is typically normal, but inflammatory markers such as ESR and CRP can be elevated. One lab test that is absolutely essential includes culture of the purulent material from the canal. This culture will help our ENT and infectious disease colleagues nail down the specific bug. CT of the temporal bones with IV contrast is a good place to start, which may show bony erosion and decreased skull base density or abscess formation. However, sensitivity is not 100%, especially in the earlier stages of the disease. If your initial CT is negative, consider MRI. MRI may depict soft tissue changes, especially of the medullary bone spaces and retrochondylar fat. What antibiotics are recommended? Well, your best course of action is to speak with your infectious disease colleagues prior to treatment and make sure to obtain a good culture of the purulent material from the canal. Most societies recommend an anti-pseudomonal agent, such as a thoroquinolone like ciprofloxacin. For those patients who are toxic appearing, you may want to use another anti-pseudomonal agent, 
such as cefepime, meropenem, or piperacillin tazobactam. Topical agents are not recommended as they make it difficult to obtain an accurate culture from the site. What about disposition? Not all patients need admission if you have ENT follow-up and ideas on board, the patient is otherwise systemically well and not immunocompromised, pain is controlled, and there is no facial palsy. However, many patients will have severe pain or immunocompromised state, and admission in these patients will probably be needed. Unfortunately, the disease can recur in 20% of cases. Facial nerve palsy and fungal infections are also poor prognostic findings. In summary, think about malignant otitis externa in a patient with severe otitis externa, pain out of proportion to exam, and severe otorrhea. Risk factors include diabetes and immunocompromised state. Diagnosis is based on your history and exam, with CT as your first-line test. If you think malignant otitis externa is present, talk with ENT and infectious disease, obtain cultures of the purulent material, and provide an anti-pseudomonal agent. All right, so think about malignant otitis externa in older patients, especially those with diabetes or some other immunocompromised state. The ones who present with severe otitis externa looking picture, pain out of proportion, and severe otorrhea. CT is a first-line test with high CRP and ESR supporting the diagnosis. Now, don't forget to send a swab for CNS and also to speak to your ID or ENT colleagues before starting anti-pseudomonal antibiotics. Next up, we have at ECG Cases himself, Jesse McLaren, hitting us with the intricacies of how to diagnose occlusion MI in the setting of a bundle branch block. You're seeing a patient with chest pain, and their ECG has a left bundle branch block. You notice there's 5 millimeters of ST elevation in the anterior leads. Do you A. Call a code STEMI because they have chest pain and a left bundle branch block. B. Call a code STEMI if the left bundle branch block is new. C. Call a code STEMI because there's 5 millimeters of discordant ST elevation. Or D. Wait for troponins because you can't diagnose STEMI with a left bundle branch block. Each of these options was at one point standard of care, but they've all been replaced by advances in ECG interpretation, which illustrates a paradigm shift from STEMI to occlusion MI. Because the STEMI paradigm is based on dichotomizing ECGs by millimeter of ST elevation, it has always floundered with the bundle branch block, because at baseline there's already ST elevation. The very definition of STEMI is ST elevation in the absence of left bundle branch block, but these same patients are older, with more comorbidities, and a higher risk from MI. The first approach to this dilemma was to consider left bottom branch block itself as an indication for reperfusion in patients with symptoms of MI. Then the indication was changed to so-called new left bottom branch block on the assumption that this represented a large anterior MI. But it's often impossible to know when left bottom branch block develops and the vast majority are not caused by acute MI, but by chronic heart disease. So the guidelines dropped this indication completely. This avoids overtreatment, but leads to its opposite. As an article in the American Heart Journal explained, the guidelines fail to recognize that some patients with suspected ischemia and left bottom branch block do have STEMI, and denying reperfusion therapy could be fatal. While new left bottom branch block is no longer an indication for reperfusion. 
there's increasing recognition of the dangers of new right bundle branch block. A study in the European Heart Journal found that patients with acute MI and right bundle branch block had the highest mortality, and that a quarter of left main occlusions presented with new right bundle branch block and new left anterior fascicular block. Automated interpretation is based on semi-criteria, so ECG machines will recognize baseline bundle branch block, but will often miss superimposed signs of occlusion MI. So how can we learn to recognize occlusion MI in the presence of bundle branch block? First, we need to understand the normal ECG and recognize bundle branch block in the absence of ischemia. Knowing the normal left bundle branch block pattern allows you to see superimposed occlusion MI. Straboza first identified these criteria as any one lead with concordant ST elevation, concordant ST depression in V1 to V3, or excessively discordant ST elevation defined as 5 millimeters. The first two criteria are very sensitive and specific, but the third is not, because it defines excessive discordance as an absolute cutoff of 5 millimeters, which doesn't take into account the size of the QRS complex. A 5 millimeter cutoff can lead to false STEMI activations if the ECG has large voltages, or missed STEMI activations if the ECG has small voltages. The Smith modified Scarboza criteria applies the principle of proportionality, defining excessively discordant ST elevation as greater than 25% of the preceding S wave. But even the modified Scarboza criteria is only 90% sensitive. So if a patient has a very high pretest likelihood of occlusion MI, for example, with refractory ischemia or cardiogenic shock, then only the cath lab can rule in or out occlusion MI. When it comes to right bundle branch block, V1 has an RSR prime morphology, and V6 has a slurred S wave. Any major changes to ST segments in the inferior or lateral leads should be obvious. But where it can be challenging is in those anterior leads, because RSR prime depolarization is followed by repolarization changes, including ST depression and T wave inversion. But if you remember the principles of discordance and proportionality, any concordant anterior ST elevation in right bundle branch block with ischemic symptoms is suspicious for anterior MI. An excessively discordant ST depression in these leads is suspicious for posterior MI. If the right bundle branch block is new, it's important to look for other conduction abnormalities, especially left anterior fascicular block, which produces left axis deviation and deep negative S waves in the inferior leads. The triad of new right bundle branch block plus new left anterior fascicular block plus new anterior ST elevation is associated with proximal LAD or left main occlusion and has a very high mortality rate. As with left bundle branch block, it's important to treat the patient and not the ECG. Serial ECGs might identify dynamic signs of occlusion with persisting symptoms, but refractory ischemia is an indication for the cath lab, even if the ECG is unclear. So for left bundle branch block, the best we have is the modified Smith-Scarbosa criteria, which we'll have on the show notes. It uses percentages of concordant and discordant ST deviation. And for right bundle branch block, it's about looking at the anterior leads for concordant ST elevation and associated left anterior fascicular block or excessively discordant ST depression. Now, those patterns have even a higher mortality rate than MI with left bundle branch block. 
Visit the ECG Cases blog for lots of examples of bundle branch block to hone your skills at diagnosing occlusion MI in the setting of bundle branch block so that your interpretation skills can be concordant with the latest advances in ECG interpretation. Next up, we've got the brilliant and witty Dr. Peter Brindley, intensivist from Edmonton, who's going to talk about the evidence and practical considerations of doing CPR with the patient on their bellies. We're talking prone CPR. Prone CPR, do we do it or do we dodge it? So to whet the clinical appetite, here's a couple of potential scenarios. You respond to a pre-hospital arrest. The patient is face down in a ditch having arrested. Do you begin chest compressions with them still prone? Do you have to wait to flip them over? Knowing they might have trauma, perhaps they're morbidly obese, etc. You respond to another car crash victim. They've been launched from their car through the windscreen. They're face down in a VF arrest. Where do you put the pads? Do you do CPR with them on the front? Do you have to flip them over? Because of COVID, you respond to a patient who's been prone, but not intubated. They've arrested. Do you flip them over? You respond to a same patient who is intubated. They have a cardiac arrest. Do you wait until enough people are gowned, gloved, and otherwise PPD'd before you start chest compressions? In short, despite the growing likelihood that you might come across a patient arrested in the prone position, most of us healthcare workers, certainly me included, are unfamiliar with delivering prone CPR and were unaware of the literature surrounding it. We're rather in the dark, and so myself, Matt Duma, and a bunch of others at the University of Alberta performed a scoping review. This was published in July 2020 in Resuscitation. So in short, is it worth it? If so, should it be taught? Is it successful? Is it difficult to do? Etc. There's an increase in prone mechanical ventilation for all reasons since the 2003 prone position in severe acute respiratory distress syndrome trial. This is also known as PROSIVA. And as outlined since the COVID pandemic, which shows no signs of abating, prone position is recommended both for confirmed and suspected cases and in both severely ill sedated patients and less ill awake patients. What are the downsides of turning somebody on their back where you're more comfortable? Well, it comes with potential risk to both patients and to staff. There's the time delay. There could be endotracheal tube displacement, disconnection of vascular lines, disconnection of ventilator tubing, and obviously staph contamination. There's the mechanical challenge of turning over an obese patient. During pandemics, rolling a patient over means you need extra people in the room, which comes with its contamination risk, maybe as many as six. Now, let me be clear with two caveats. Number one, almost all doctors, nurses, paramedics will flip a patient onto their back before attempting an advanced airway, and nobody's arguing that you need to also intubate patients while prone. So we're only talking about the first couple of minutes in other words, do you initiate chest compressions? Do you deliver defibrillation early on before you have to flip the patient over for airway capture and supplemental breaths? What did we find? Well, probably more than some people would expect and less than most of us would hope. Only four research studies and 24 uh, publications in total, so 20 case series or case studies. In terms of the four research studies, Blood pressure generated during supine or prone compressions in six ICU patients. 
Next, a study of cadavers and healthy volunteers, only 10 of each on blood pressure and tidal volume, a prone compression quality study done on mannequins, and lastly, a retrospective study of 100 patients who received a CT while in the prone position in order to identify where the largest mass of the left ventricle would be and therefore where you would put your hands. The other 20 publications were case series, case reports. Unfortunately, all but five of these occurred in operating theaters. Half of them were in pediatric patients. You decide whether that's a good thing that they were included or whether it further dilutes the oomph of the conclusions. And most were in PEA or asystole. So prone compression quality, i.e., if appropriate, to do it, does it actually work? Well, actually, yes, it appears to from the limited literature that there is. There's an improvement in systolic, diastolic, and mean arterial pressure, an end tidal CO2 of greater than or equal to 28, which is pretty darn good, and decent tidal volumes of 400 cc's. Pretty darn good. Just as good as supine. What about landmarking? Where do you put your hands? Well, as I say, one study looked at the chest CTs to correlate surface landmarks that overlie the largest amount of left ventricle. The largest left ventricular cross-sectional area was zero to two vertebral segments below the inferior angle of the scapula. What does that mean? Well, it really just means you put your hands on the thoracic vertebral column at the lower aspect of the scapulae. Really, just the reverse of where you would on the front. What about survival? 25 cases, 20 of them survived till the end of resuscitation. A lower number looked at long-term survival, and seven of those cases reported full neurologic recovery. Not that far off than when you look at uh, supine CPR studies. In summary, there may be more supportive literature than clinicians realize, but there's many important gaps, and, and the evidence is not yet strong, but it is encouraging. What about the AHA guidelines, the ACLS guidelines? Well, they're even more circumspect, but they say it may be reasonable for rescuers to provide CPR in the prone position, particularly in hospitalized patients, particularly in those with an advanced airway. So you've decided you're going to give it a go. How do you actually make it happen? Well, the words that are used are a certain technique called reversed precordial compression. In everyday language, this means you compress over the mid to lower thoracic spine. People talk about counter pressure under the lower sternum. So it might be that you put one hand on the back and one hand on the front if you're a single rescuer. Others have talked about two hands on the back and a second person adding that sternal counter pressure. By the way, the same thing applies for a patient in the lateral position if you ever do CPR in that way. In 2020, fabulous guidelines were published by the UK's Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine and the Intensive Care Society. This was all spurred by the COVID pandemic. These organizations jointly recommended a two-handed technique over the mid-thoracic spine between the two scapulae. The second person is optional, especially because that means you're going to expose another person. Alternatively, Matt Doomer has also published a paper on a 3D printer where you can make a piece of plastic that you put underneath the patient's sternum, or for that matter, you can put any hard surface. What about for defibrillation? Well, in a perfect world, you would actually put the pads on the same place in the front, especially because the heart falls forward. But 
you're probably not going to be able to do that. So you can put a pad in the left axilla, the fifth intercostal space, mid-axillary position, and one over the right scapulae. Or you know what? You can just put one in each axilla because you just want to capture the myocardial mass. So in summary, thank you for listening. Our scoping review has limitations. More work is needed. I know everybody says that. But in brief, if the patient's appropriate to initiate supine CPR, then they're appropriate for you to initiate prone CPR. You flip them over after two minutes, three minutes, and then you establish your airway just as you would before. Thank you. So hopefully you've learned a little something about when and how to perform a lateral canthotomy for the patient who just got smashed in the eye and who looks like the eye is popping out of their head. Remember, just do it. You've probably gained an appreciation for the difference between adults and kids when it comes to cannabis toxicity. Not so benign in kids. We learned about Dr. Strayer's approach to hyperthermia, which divides patients into those with temps less than 41 and those with temps greater than 41. And the ones with temps greater than 41 use the ice water bath that he describes and sort out the differential quickly. And what about malignant otitis externa? Well, even though it's rare, you've got to be on the lookout for malignant otitis externa and those older patients, the immunocompromised ones, those with severe symptoms, and don't forget to swab their ear. Make sure you're up on the Smith-modified Scarbosa criteria for occlusion MI and left bundle branch block. And in terms of right bundle branch block and occlusion MI, scrutinize those anterior leads for ST deviation and anterior fascicular block. And last but not least, consider prone CPR for the first two to three minutes next time you're faced with an arrested patient who's proning for whatever reason. So until next time, as long as the COVID pandemic is here, please go out and tell everyone you know to minimize meeting people indoors whenever possible. If they have to meet indoors, wear a mask at all times. Do the physical distancing thing with everyone except household contacts and seek help if you're feeling down. We all have a public health role to play in this pandemic. So stay safe, everyone. And thanks so much for taking the time to listen to EM cases. Take it easy.